you Yeah, yo There whenever it matters And even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't No, I'm right alongside you Either that or I'm behind you But always got you End the discussion Nothing means more First one to offer his shoulders For what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world Until I seen yours And know that I ain't seen it better view yet I'm with whatever So don't ever you fret Know that you covered Not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a part take Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable In your walkway My job is to aware you Fully loaded Prepare you for all of the above that I'm never letting get near you. But still, I know, give you every advantage I found. Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown. And since the baton was passed, hopping down, feeling's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all. Hey, what's going on, everybody? My name is Ishmael. I am the creator of the Dad Is Not a Noun podcast. Hope everyone's doing well. I got my brother by my side, aka, not aka, but he's just. Just that dope. Damar Douglas. Damar, say what's up to the people. Hey, what's happening, folks? <laughs> and then also, I'm truly privileged to have this. Um, yeah, your audio is coming through. It's coming so so so, but we'll make it work. You know, okay. you know. But but it's all good. But I'm truly privileged to have this extraordinary guest on. Just a man of many talents. He's a renaissance. Um, I don't know if he's going to love me saying this, but I'm going to say it. He, to me, I felt like he's like the James James Baldwin of the comic book world. Wow. If, wow. If James Baldwin was a comic writer, we're, we will be talking to him right now. I'm truly privileged and honored to have this man on, Hannibal Tabu. How you doing, sir? Wow, you put a whole lot on me there, man. I don't know if I can hang with that. I, uh, I'm good, but wow. wow. That's high praise indeed. Okay, wow. But it, it's well-deserved, man, because uh, earlier today I did watch what you did in 2016. We did like a little conference um, on the David Blake rule, which was ah, dope. Yes, yes. One of my favorite presentations. It don't make if it don't make money, it don't make sense. So, can you kind of break that down for the people? Because I think that's important. Because that goes back to knowing your value as a content creator. I can. Um, one of my creative mentors, if not personal mentors, is Christopher Priest, who is the first black uh, uh, editor and one, the first black writer in mainstream comics. And he used to talk all the time about there's a difference between art for art's sake and art for commerce sake. Art for art's sake is the sort of thing that uh, uh, Emily, uh, I think it was Emily, Emily Dickinson, the poet, did, where she wrote all these hundreds and hundreds of poems and never told anybody about them, and they found them in a trunk in her attic 20 years after she was dead. And through her life, she was never known as a great poet. She was a mom. She was a housewife. She had a life. She did art for art's sake because she didn't care whether you liked it. She didn't care whether it sold. She didn't care whether none of that. If, however, you intend to get paid, if intended, however, you intend to put your stuff out into the marketplace of ideas, you've got to be able to com- compete. And that's art for commerce sake. So under that, listening to DJ Quick off the Murders Was the Case soundtrack, because uh, I used to do a lot of entertainment reporting, I heard, if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. And I was like, you know what? That adds to a lot of things. If you're working at a commercial standpoint, that's really what happens. So despite the fact that, oh, I don't know, I thought King and Black was terrible. Lots of people bought it. So, yeah. you know, it is what it is. 
That's that's fact. That's fact. And then also go back, not go back, but I'm a strong believer of understanding the difference between diversity and inclusion. Can you break down the difference between the two as a storyteller? Absolutely. Uh, diversity is John Stewart who is the, sec the second or third or whatever person that you know to get a Green Lantern ring being included in the Justice League. Inclusion is that he would have been there all along, that he would have been the first Green Lantern. Inclusion would be that you wouldn't need to add somebody to get a black person because they were already there. Uh, and that kind of shifting of the thinking is what happens when, for example, an artist doing a page says, oh, I have to add some black background characters. Well, if you'd added a diverse, you know, a, a really inclusive crowd in the first place, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. Um, if we reflect the world that is and not the world that we've been told that is, then we normally won't even have to have that issue. That's very true. And then also, um, talk about what got you interested in storytelling. <laughs> well, <laughs> I... Uh, well, okay. To be to keep it a, keep it a hundred, it all really starts with George Lucas, because my mom took me to see uh, what's now A New Hope in 1977, and my entire wig was blown off of my head. Because I grew up in uh, Milwaukee and Chicago and Memphis and these kind of what I thought were enormously boring places to be, and the idea that you could leave your boring place where you were and go off and live a life of importance was enormously impactful to me. So when I was eight years old, I wrote my first novel. It was 220 pages of college rule notebook paper, not the wide lines, but the college rule. And it's terrible. It's so, so bad. But I finished it. And <laughs> the next thing I wrote was better than that. And the next thing I wrote was better than that. So I learned the importance of getting an idea, sticking to an idea, finishing an idea, and it just felt like there were all these stories inside my head pushing against my skull, desperate to get out. So I stopped ignoring them. I started listening to them. And I started sending them out to the world. So y'all got to deal with them now. So <laughs> now they're out of my head. And that's awesome. And then also, that's an important thing, too, is storytelling as well as finding your voice. So can you connect those two? Because two? when you create stories, it builds your confidence. And then you're out there showing it to the world. And then you're confident in when you tell your story so can you kind of put those two together for me absolutely when uh i'm at conventions a lot of times i say something very common when somebody asks me a question about you know breaking in about about starting to write or draw or however they want to get in comics i'm like there's nobody that can tell the stories that you can tell that you can tell we need you here so whatever you need to do level up get your get your get get the terrible stories out the way because you got to write them and you got to get them out the way uh, uh, what do they say about 10,000 hours to master anything? The first 5,000 hours might suck, and that's fine because you need to get those out of the way to be able to develop yourself as an artist, develop your craft. I mean, you don't go into karate class and get the black belt the first day. You got to work your way up to it, and it's the same basic idea. So along the way, people normally find, who am I? What am I trying to say? What 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 is the specifics of my voice, the cadence of, of my creativity? And as they find that, that factors into the mastery that they ultimately will gain. And then how does that apply to fatherhood? Because I think they kind of go hand in hand. Well, <laughs> well, it, uh, 
fatherhood is is a very similar thing where I, you're going to screw up. Um, you know, I, I there will be times when I remember my oldest. We were walking into a, a dance recital that my wife was teaching at, and my oldest wasn't paying attention and walked face first into a con- concrete pole. Not very fast, but enough to bump and be surprised by, right? <laughs> I was supposed to be watching, but I was looking for something in my pocket. And because I was new at it, I was supposed to probably be like, oh, you're okay. But instead, I busted up laughing. <laughs> I just started cracking up laughing. So the kid looks at me and starts laughing too, like, it must be funny. And I didn't get in trouble for it for weeks after that. But <laughs> there will be mistakes that will weeks. But literally, uh, yeah, literally 90% of the job is just showing up. Because we, many of us know very, firsthand, per, a lot of people don't even bother with that. If you show up for the job, if you're legitimately trying to do right, and you'll make mistakes in the way, you'll learn from those mistakes along the way, that's fine. Because showing up is really the most important part of it. And, and, it's similar to showing up for the hours that you have to put in as a writer, as an artist, as a singer, as a rapper, as a sculptor, as whatever you want to be. You have to show up and keep trying and accept you're going to make mistakes on the road. That's part of the process. And part of the process, too, is, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm a strong believer of affirmation and representation. So who, what was your first black action figure? <laughs> My first black action figure. Okay. That would be Stalker from the G.I. Joe series. Um, Lonzo Wilkinson from Detroit, Michigan. I know his foul card inside and out. He had a parade, and he came up he came up through the gangs, but he beat the gangs, and he went and joined the military, and he got much, much more dangerous. And, uh, yeah, Lonzo I remember was that talking about the first uh, <laughs> black action figure. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. But as a father, that's, it's, it's talk that's about dope. How, yeah, that is, right? But as a father, talk about that aspect to your children, too. And, you know, you make that uh, psychological intention to buy them, like, action figures or stories that look like them. Well, Absolutely. Yeah, we're we're very we're very specific. My wife was very specific very early on uh, that there would be no white dolls in our house, which was fine. Um, I had action figures, and I knew that my youngest in particular, who I was able to get on board with me as a Star Wars fan, liked Leia. So I could get a Leia action figure because I would also get an Adi Gallia action figure. And I was like, well, Leia's tough, but Adi Gallia got a lightsaber. Adi Gallia got a what? So <laughs> Leia sometimes falls to the side, and Adi Gallia takes the center of things. Uh, likewise, you know, I wasn't into the kind of gender normal, uh, heteronormative sort of thing. So my daughter had a gang of action figures and Transformers and all kind of stuff. So boys and girls would come and they'd be able to play with her and they'd be able to find something they enjoy. And she was able to play with all those people. I didn't believe that limiting who she could be was the right choice because she was going to come out as girly and makeupy and and I like dresses as she was going as she is now. No matter what I had to do with it, that was who she was going to be. Uh, but now she has a greater spectrum of experience. She has a greater spectrum of understanding, of storytelling, and of, of, of ways to connect with people. And I believe that's an advantage. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely believe that bringing toys that affirm into the home are important. I, I agree with the fact that we didn't get, like, black, you know, white Barbie dolls or whatever. But when we went to Ghana, for example, 
If you go to Ghana in the toy stores, you'll find white doll, white doll, white doll, white doll. But if you go into the stores that are not toy stores, they're regular stores, there's nothing but black stuff there. So we was like, all right, we're going to get you this black doll from Ghana. We're going to get you this. And these are high-quality things. They hold up to play, and they look great. So being able to see that image around you reflects what happens to you. Rascast has a line, the diameter of your knowledge is the circumference of your activity. So if you see black, it's a lot easier to be black. And that's awesome that you brought up Roscas. Uh Damar that did some artwork for Roscas. Pretty awesome. Damar, you have a phenomenal, phenomenal artist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's fire. Absolutely. Um, do you find that being um is the mic on? Yeah, you're good. Can you hear me? Yeah, bro. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, so yes, I was in that problem earlier. All right, so do um, you find being a um, challenge is being a of the uh, melanated origin <laughs> in the in this in this in this particular industry, like Roblox or being kind of you know how they have like Hollywood, then they have like Black Hollywood. Do you find that there's a, a definitive distinction at the um, the comic or animated um, industry from your experiences? You're breaking up a little bit. I believe your question was, do I believe that there are differences for black creators? And yes. And and a little bit about that. I'll tell two stories. Yes. First, um, I was invited to uh, judge the Glyph Awards for uh, Xbox for probably about two or three years. And I got a lot of comics sent to me that I was like, somebody submitted this and thought this should get an award. And these were not professional grade work. They were not. Um, so I got to see that there is a there is a very common perception among a lot of people that if you see something that's black owned or black made, it's going to be of lower quality because we're not standing up to the level of quality that we see. I have personally proven that wrong. The people I roll with, Brandon Easton, Joe Illich, Jeff Thorne, uh, you know, they've definitely proven this wrong. Uh, Stephanie Williams, Quinn McGowan. But when you see people come with that impression, it's sometimes hard to defeat. So I'll say the other way. I went to Comic-Con many years ago, the first year, actually, I got to be careful because when I tell the story, I'm about to tell some people's business. There was a major <laughs> comic book company that had a, a, a room. I'm not going to say which one. If you search hard enough, I've accidentally told the name in the story online. But uh, it was a major comic book company that had uh, a private room of hospitality. I was with somebody who helped me crash this room because that's whatever. You know, he's a white guy. Uh -huh. He was able to to get the information, I just followed. I'm sitting on the couch minding my own business, and a guy sits down next to me who's a very high-ranking executive at this company. And uh, he looks at me and says, were you invited here? I was like, nope. <laughs> and he says, well, look, I know you probably want to write for our company, but unless you break into another industry first and really show that you've got a track record, then we're not really going to be able to do anything with you. So definitely look at that as the first thing. Now, he said this to me without me asking him anything. He said this to me without knowing that I was the managing editor of Rap Pages, which had 250,000 copies a month. He said this to me without knowing that I was also the editor of the Los Angeles Herald's Dispatch, which went out to 60,000 people a week. So the idea wow. of his little chintzy 10,000 sales of comics or whatever is cute or whatever, but it's not really where I bought. <laughs> so I said to him, I'm like, well, first of all, I didn't ask you for anything. I don't want anything from you. 
But thank you for letting me know that the door was closed before I even went to look. You've been enormously instructive. And he says, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I'm like, no, you kind of did. And I'm going to get up and walk away from you now. And I did. And, you know, I've been talking about dudes' mom ever since, to be honest with you. But um, <laughs> so when I see this, I recognize that I can't control, I can't control how people are going to perceive me. I can't control how people are going to act towards me. I can control the work that I do. And the work that I do is professional grade. I've trained for it. I've worked with some of the best to to learn and to get my level up to be able to do it. And, yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, talking about... So, um, no, you did, man. You went all in. You, you, a, lot, a lot of uh, tea was drip, <laughs> dropped in that. <laughs> but... But no, I'm, you know I'm gonna start googling tonight, right? <laughs> there you are. <laughs> if you that's why I mess with uh, if you ask me, that's why I mess with Marvel now. That's why I mess with Marvel now. <laughs> my assumption, right? <laughs> I never said your words, not mine. <laughs> my words, not yours. <laughs> but talking about black excellence, can you talk about that's that project? Uh, nowhere. Is the new black? Ah, Noir is the new black. That was a great project. That was uh, my second project actually with Fabrice Sabolsky, who's also the one who put me on with the uh, principles with human animals. And he is he he co-created Spider-Man Noir for Marvel, so he's got a real love for noir storytelling and for what's happening with that. So he wanted to come up with a book that will be all black creators telling. All their own stories set in the noir thing and, and kind of lay, make layers to it. Um, he called me. I called my longtime creative partner, Quinn McGowan. We both grew up in Memphis. Uh, we're both, you know, good old country dudes who, uh, uh, you know, we like to eat the little messed up part of wing that everybody else don't eat. That's us. Uh, and, and we threw down. We got down with a story that, um, you know, uh, was very different. It was very different for both of us in terms of writing noir. Me, I was writing a character that was uh, 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 that was non-binary, that uh, uh, was a part of the LGBTQ by uh, community that I spent a lot of time researching and learned, and about um, people who prey on those communities, especially black people in those communities, without consequence. So, so I was able to really factor in a lot of things that were very important to me in the story. It was six pages. I'm very, I'm very proud of the work that we did. And man, where do you see that? I, what I do with the retail edition? I'm like, what? <laughs> so, you know, he's, Fabrice is a French dude, but he's, he's a, he's a down, down French dude. I'm down with him. He, he, he can come by and get a plate from the cookout. I don't know if we're going to let him in. <laughs> At least we can definitely plate. get a plate. He got to get a plate. <laughs> but, but that's amazing because I didn't see anything like that and I had to search really hard oh, to find it. It's, right. not, it's not out there that people know that this exists, that you get all these great black talent together to create different stories. 
and it's crazy. I have to, like, really search to find yeah. it. Yeah, please, please. Mm-hmm. Hello, are you there? Yeah, the the market doesn't really give us a lot of things that we need, honestly. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you now. It was a little kind of... Can you hear me okay? I can hear you good now. I can hear you good now. Because y'all are lagging a little bit on me. Okay. Uh, all right. Anyway, like like Whitney said, it's a lonely place to be, so I had to learn to depend on me. So that's what that's what it is. If, if the market ain't going to create what we need, we got to create it ourselves. That's right. All right. And... Um, Talk about the, this new project. I'm a big fan. Um, I feel that. I'm a big fan of the project right now. Um, Damar is working on Prince right now. But the book is basically you're about... Fading, you're fading out a little bit on me. I'm sorry, is that, is that Is that better now? Am I fading out still? Or am ah, I there you that go. Yeah, yeah. You, were, you were going a little robotic on me. Okay. But yeah. Uh, I'm getting a little robotic about. tip from you, but I'm, I'm going to try to make it through. <laughs> Uh, what I like about this project, um, the MPLS, is just is a tribute to the sound of of uh, Minneapolis. So, can you kind of talk about that? You know, the the concept behind it and why you wanted to write this 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 uh, graphic novel. Uh, could you? Could you hear me, or I was still kind of sounding kind of robotic? Yeah, I can. Okay. Fabrice. Fabrice? Call me out of the blue. Like he said, I've been researching your work, and I was wondering if you could come by to the office of the humanoid and talk to me about something. I'm like, all right, sure, whatever. So I took the day off of work, and I drove over there. Okay. So I'm having an unstable connection, so I hope you all can hear me. Um, anyway, and he asked me to come over there, and I'm going to – sorry, I'm, I'm under a – of uh, airplane passing. Uh, did I lose you guys? No, I'm here. I'm still, I can hear you. We can hear you. Okay, good. All right, so he calls me over, and I go over to the, the humanoid office, and um, he has me sign a non-disclosure agreement, which I'm like, oh, okay, we can serious, okay. Um, then he starts to tell me about these books that he wants to do, Ignited, Omni, and how he's going to revolutionize superheroes. The idea. I'm like, this sounds dope, dope. He's like, great. Forget about all that. None of that matters. I'm like, but what? You got me all hot and bothered about that? What's going on? <laughs> he says, I want you to write a book set in the early 1980s in Minneapolis because I've been reading your work as a journalist. I've been reading your work as a comic book artist. I think you got the right set of skills to bring this to market, and I really want you to get down. I was like, okay, cool. So we do a scary amount of research. I get actual people from Minneapolis, both white and black, to interview them. I'm able to go through their stories, find out about the little nooks and crannies of their lives that you know everybody don't know about Minneapolis. And uh, then uh, uh, the publisher brought on Joe Illich and Meredith as an artist, and we really put together a book that we all are very proud of, that, that uh, speaks to that era and both the triumphs and challenges of it. Because, I mean, as much as I love Prince, as, as important as he's been to my personal development, there were issues of colorism, there were issues of, there were political challenges with uh, specific things he was doing there that, you know, we are who we are, you know, everybody ain't perfect, but uh, I believe we presented it in a way that was fair and a way that had a lot of love. Definitely. Um, can you also talk about the, what did you learn that you didn't uh, know about Prince um, before, but now you know from doing all that research? 
Well, one of the things I didn't know was how broke Prince was at one point. Um, Prince, uh, there was a story about him in high school after he got kicked out of his folks' house where he would stand outside of a burger place so he could smell the hamburgers that he couldn't afford to buy. Um, another thing that really struck me was his high school music teacher uh, was interviewed by Tilda Ray in a book uh, about Prince. And uh, the music teacher said he wasn't even the most talented dude in the class. There was a lot of people who were significantly better musicians than him, but, but none of them were willing to work as hard as he was. None of them were as willing to, to put it all on the line the way he was. And that made me think, if he wasn't the most talented dude in your class, and he was Prince, <laughs> who, did we, who did we miss an opportunity to hear based on the fact that society is set up this way that they didn't get the same opportunity? They didn't, get, they didn't get the same room to grow because maybe they had family stuff. We don't know, we don't know their stories, and I think that's something that was taken from us, honestly. Definitely. And then also, can you talk about, like, like the, the – because when I think about the Minneapolis sound, um, I like, like what I've learned is that it starts back from the 50s. Um, can you kind of – are you able to talk about, like, the unsung heroes of that sound, the forefront? I can to a certain degree. I mean, Minneapolis was a, a musical hub for the country because because at the time, I mean, out of the late 80s, about a third of the cassette tapes that were made in the entire world went, or were either made in Minneapolis or shipped through Minneapolis. So uh, because of this, a lot of music industry people would go through there and it became a very strong town for breaking talent and for showing talent. A lot of people were uh, uh, coming up through this, this scene there. And when you get to, you know, in the 80s, when you had stuff like uh, Skidoo and The Replacements, there was a very strong punk era uh, in uh, uh, Minneapolis that people thought was going to be the thing. They thought this is where we're going to have the next clash. This is where we're going to have the next sex system. And those groups ultimately fell by the wayside. Uh, Prince had an idea. He had a very crystal clear idea that he could make a lane for himself that nobody else was in, and he could run the table. And he was right. Now, in doing so, he recognized some unfortunate realities. He said, Brown Mark, you're too dark, you're too big, you're not getting no record. And that was true because he knew that he couldn't, uh, he could, after he was practically pelted off stage for opening for the Rolling Stones, he knew that somebody blacker than him certainly wasn't going to be able to get no love. Uh, so he curated his image, he curated his collaborators, he curated everything about his experience in creating something specific to him that became the Minneapolis sound. And you hear drips of it through Andre Simone with Jody Watley. You hear drips of it through Jam and Lewis with uh, uh, everything that Clarence Avant did, with Sherelle, with Alexander O'Neill, and so on and so forth, uh, the SOS band. So all of this kind of came together uh, uh, in a place that was driven, literally driven by music. Uh, a lot of people would go and make cassettes all day at this factory, and then go out and jam all night. This was a very common thing in Minneapolis. So the city kind of had that built into its DNA in a way that was similar to what Motown had, but didn't rely so much on uh, an industry that, you know, was going to die out a different way. The motor industry died a different way than the cassette industry did. And you'll see a lot of that poverty happening with the conditions that led to George Floyd, the conditions that led to a lot of the things that are still happening in Minneapolis today. That's, that's true. Wow, that's so true. Um, and then can you talk about, before we, we wrap everything on this 
great conversation we've had. Can you talk about the main character in the book, Star Child? Like, what elements of old, like, uh, elements of artists is in the body in Star Child? All right. Well, the lead character, Teresa Booker, is based on a woman named Teresa that I used to work with at a company called Image Magazine back in the early '90s, and she was this super fine, dark-skinned sister that had the lowest self-esteem I had ever seen. When I met her, uh, it was at a launch party for the magazine, and she had brought her best friend, who was this real life skin sister, right? And there's like four dudes talking to her friend, and she's standing right behind them, just looking down, right? I walked right past this other girl, because this other girl was like, oh, Hannibal, I heard you. I was like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Hi. And I was her. <laughs> and she like looks up, she's like, you're talking to me? And she was surprised about it. Um, and that kind of being used to being overlooked element played heavily into the character. The physical character is based very strongly on the Teresa that I knew. Uh, the, a lot of those things are very intentional. So then I factored in another person I knew who was this dude. When I was in junior high in Memphis, there was a cat named Ellis. He was six foot three in eighth grade, probably 210, 220 pounds. He was a big dude, right? But he was a sweetheart. You don't want to cross him, but he was a sweetheart. So Ellis factored into that, and I felt he was the right foil to stand at the side of her. And the name Starchild came from the song Make My Funk to Pee Funk. There's a part where it says, we're not leaving yet, y'all. Stay tuned for Starchild. I was like, oh, this is who's coming up next. They would have taken that as an invitation. And when that all came together as this band of, of kind of multi-ethnic people in a kind of a Sly in the Family Stone model, um... It, it showed me some of what could have happened that the machine in Minneapolis wasn't set up to do. You couldn't have done Sly Stone in Minneapolis because he was too dark. You, could, you know, he, he had to make a lane for himself, but that lane was only so wide. Prince was like, I'm trying to have a bigger lane than that. And Amer if that lane is in America, that lane has got to be light. And sorry, not sorry. And that's what it, well, that's what it was. That's right. And do you see this actually becoming an actual real-life film? I mean, you know, uh, I'm trying to see what I should say. Um, <laughs> I, could, <laughs> I could definitely see some people being very interested in this work. I could definitely see it being translated onto the big screen. Um, the only challenge is, is if people's estates and, you know, if people are legally willing to let their likenesses and names be used, uh, that's, that's a problem for lawyers. I don't really do that. I'm, you know, I'm just here to write stuff. But, uh, yeah, they're in the, in the same vein of Almost Famous, in the same vein of a lot of great music films. This definitely would do well to show that side of Minneapolis in a way the Purple Rain, because of its kind of mythic nature, could not. And I could see this being like a, a, a Purple Rain-esque film. It's, if, if the stars align together and it happens, if it happens... Uh, hope it happens, but uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. <laughs> uh, Mr. Sir, I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us, having like, this great conversation. What advice do you have to like upcoming artists, storytellers out there? What, what advice do you have? Well, I'll say the same thing I say at all, all conventions. First of all, finish things. That um, the difference between a professional and an amateur is having something. 
Uh, and if people talk, people talk about ideas all the time. I got an idea for this. I got an idea for this. Nobody cares. People care about product. People care about something they can sell. So whatever you're working on, finish it. Do it and do it as well as you can. And if it's early on in your career, accept that it may not be your best work. Accept that you may revisit it. Accept that you may get better than it and move past it. That's fine. Um, so the fir finishing things is the first thing. The second thing that's always important to tell people is that uh, it's more important to work on your craft than to try to get famous. That um, people are always like, oh, why wasn't I one? Why didn't I win this award? Why didn't I? Those things don't matter. Uh, because in his day, Shakespeare was the number two dude. Christopher Marlowe was the man back then. But who's talking about Christopher Marlowe now? Nobody. So, you know, stay on your grind, work on your craft, develop your work. Your work will stand for you when you can't stand for yourself. And the third, and most importantly perhaps, is that don't give up. That we need you here. If you, if you have a story to tell, that story needs to be told, and literally nobody else can do it like you. Facts. And that's it. And we're out. Speaking of stories, um, now that we're starting to get subpar representation, in my opinion, uh, as far as the, uh, the amount of representation on, I guess, Netflix and other uh, platforms, um, when you see things like uh, Yasagi, um, you see things like Cannabusters, this is always the talk amongst the, you know, black communities, um, the story writing could have been better or could have been more involved or whatever. Um, do you think there's a certain amount of pandering that just for like a like a um, like a quote like a quote I'm trying to be met by these some of these corporate industries just to try to put something out so we can appease so we can be on the right side of history because black lives matter all of a sudden? I well, there's two sides to that. Short answer, no, I don't, because they don't care. They will make money with or without us, and they literally do not care. Um, every time that you see something on the screen, somebody says, I'm willing to spend money to gamble that this will make money. That's everything that you've seen in the history of art that has come through a major company, because their goal is to make money. Their goal is not to make friends. Their goal is not to make history. Um, so when we see those things, they, saw, they figured there's a market for this, and I can, pay, I, can, I can sell to that market. Now, whether those things worked or not are, are a question of craft. But, I mean, my personal belief, and I say this all the time, I'd rather be ignored than insulted. Um, and if you're, going to bring, if you're going to bring something out that uh, is going to be not made by us, not made for us, not made in a way that's about us, then I'd rather not see it, honestly. I'd rather not see it happen. Uh, I, don't, I don't stand in the way of no other... Nobody else getting a check because I know how hard it is getting these jobs out here. I get that. But I have the luxury because I have a day job and because I am a jerk and I don't care. I have the luxury of saying no when I don't believe in something. I have the luxury of saying, this ain't for me, this ain't for us, and it's not going to happen. Um, if other people need to do things other ways, they're welcome too. I'm not here to judge them. I can only walk my own path. So, no, I don't believe that there's pandering. I do know, however, I will say the other side of that answer. Um, I was on the phone with Kevin Grievous, um, and this was uh, after Black Panther came out. And he says, is it just me or have you noticed that you're getting a lot more calls? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I've taken five meetings this week with people who were really excited about things and talked to me. And at the end of every meeting, they're like, yeah, because we love Black Panther. 
after he after after Ryan hung a billion dollars on him in 27 days, they was like, hold up, there might be some money here. We need to look into this money. And I likewise, I mean, the humanoids call came after Black Panther. Uh, <laughs> I got a number of gigs that came after that. I'm not gonna lie, that I ain't take some meetings, I ain't get some money. But the work that I put out, I would stand by. It ain't no, it ain't no, it ain't no okie doke work. So, you know, when I when I look at works that I've coming out, like I've got a new miniseries coming out from Wonderman Comics called War Medicine, which is a supernatural western with a half black, half giant lead, a woman, a, a sister. Um, and I'm I'm proud to see this work. I'm proud to see the research I put into this work and the detail that I put into it. So, do I think the companies are pandering? No. What I think you're seeing is that if and and my 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 creative partner Quinn McGowan said this. He's like, I know what I can do as an artist but I am not a writer. And if I try to pretend that I'm a writer, it's not going to come out as well. So I need to find a writer, and that's why I found you. And likewise, I can't draw. So I would never presume to say, oh, this needs to be this way, and this visual thing. I don't know. What do I know? I'm a writer. Uh, I've got opinions, but it's not my field. So if you build the right team, the right team will generate the right material. Uh, if you have somebody who has a cult of personality, and I'm not naming names, not pointing fingers to nobody, but if you have somebody who believes, I can do this myself, and they create an echo chamber, there's not going to be anybody to tell them, yo fam, what about this? Yo fam, what about this? Everybody needs to intern Jamal in the room. Everybody does. Uh, and also, it seems like there's always like the limited, I don't want to just call out names, you know what I'm saying, like, I'm from, you know, from Cali, so... Uh, I get around a little bit, um, but it's always like that limited group, um, the LTs or the CCs, you can figure out the acronyms or the initials later, but, <laughs> right here, don't tell but it's like, it's only that group of people that's like really, you know, so I don't know if it's like, like, you know, like the affiliation or, or, the, or the previous accolades or something, but it's like, I don't see anything really ground. That's really pushing the needle to the next level. You know what I mean? Like, and that's a little bit frustrating because I know there's so well, much more. So, like, I love what Greedis is doing with um, Bet with Bass Reeves right now. Phenomenal. It can come out a little bit faster, hopefully. But I mean, y'all got Walmart Walmart distribution. That's dope. Yeah. So I'm like, Gangster. I would love to see that turn into something. That's <laughs> right. So I mean, seeing that would be. Phenomenal, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's frustrating sometimes from my perspective. So I mean, I can only imagine from you know because you you do more. I'm a I'm more illustrator, fine artist. Um, I know you're heavy on the comic book stuff, so I can imagine the frustration levels that possibly could <laughs> could be there. Well, I mean, I'm old enough to know the game now, and there's a saying in Hollywood: everybody wants to be second, nobody wants to be first. George, George, George Lucas rather walked around with that Star Wars script in his backpack for years and years and years, and it was turned down by almost every studio in Hollywood. They were like, "This is garbage. Nobody's going to watch this. This is ridiculous. How dare you? Get out of my office!" But he was like, "You know what? I'm right, and they're wrong. So I'm going to keep working on it." And he did. And he just happened to have two good best friends. Steven Spielberg and, and Scorsese and they kept working on stuff and he put it out and he cut the coldest deal ever because Fox was like alright look we'll do you a stupid little movie he's like alright but I'll take less money up front if I can own all the merchandise and they said 
What's merchandiser? Sure thing, idiot. <laughs> oh, it's like, oh, go ask Kenner, Kenner about it. Go ask Kenner. That's what it was at the time, right, Kenner? But Kenner wasn't even a thing. <laughs> Kenner wasn't even, it wasn't even something like that. So uh, the studio owned, well, they owned, now it's all Disney. But the studio owned the first Star Wars movie, Lock, Stock, and Bear. They owned it. But he got the right to keep all the characters. He got the right to the merchandising. He got the right to the licensing. And he's like, let me show you fool something. And he invented a new way of business. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, we need the next Star Wars. But they weren't interested in the first Star Wars. So, yeah. Everybody wants, when you're looking for something groundbreaking, you definitely should not be looking to Hollywood for it, because that's not where it lives. It it comes from the independents. It comes from people who have to fight their own way. It comes from iconoclasts who make their own decisions and chart their own path, much like our purple brother that you done drawn on the screen. Right, no doubt. Yeah, Yeah, I can can definitely dig the... um, the whole premise of how, I mean, you know, the, the juggernaut Disney done bought up, I mean, what, 80, 90% of everything we grew up on, right? But um, what was dope, though, was that I, I heard Todd McFarlane talking about how um, all the other companies, New Lion Cinemas and the Lion Lion Press or Lion Court or whatever that um, production company is, how everybody's looking for content now. So I can truly appreciate, you know what I'm saying, like the, the backlash, not only for the backlash, but the open opportunities, so I would definitely see, love to see some of your stuff on uh, on film, and, and TV, or whatever, or streaming, you're strong. However, 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 however <laughs> you get it, you know what I'm saying, so, so I dig that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But, that's all I can say. Yeah. The only thing people I mean, need to do is just something in the works. <laughs> that's right. At the end of the day, people just got to keep supporting you. Buy your books, buy your T-shirts, whatever you're selling. People need to just buy and invest. Invest in what you're doing. I do I do appreciate that. I mentioned Toby and Wigway earlier, and he has a hashtag. Buy merch, not music. And he's a rapper, and he, he, he does music, and that's what he does. But he knows that that's not where money comes from. That's what George Lucas knew, that that's not where money money. Uh, uh, I did an interview with Michael Franti from Spearhead, and he said, the only reason I do these records with Capitol Records is so my record is big enough that people will come see my show. Shows are where I make money. I lose money on records. And understanding that business is, is the real deal. So, yeah, I always tell my kids, uh, I will drive across town to pay the blackjack. I'll pay more to uh, uh, buy food or, or buy stuff from a black business because I want them to exist. And if I want them to exist, I have to vote with my dollar. Because otherwise, the white folks surely are not going to do it for me. Exactly. And on that right. note, thank you, sir. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us, man. We are big fans. We're going to always support you. Uh, thank you. Tomorrow, you got another question from before we end it. <laughs> oh, man, we good. we're good. I, I ain't trying to get him in trouble. I got, you know what I'm saying? Like... Uh, you know, I got the I got the Malcolm X glasses. You feel me? So, <laughs> so you know, I'm, I'm with the shit. So, <laughs> I ain't know her dinner for for another hour. I'm good. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you, and we're out. Peace. Blessings. So for you, yeah, yeah.
there whenever it matters And even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't Know I'm right alongside you Here by that I'm behind you But always got you End the discussion Nothing means more First one to offer his shoulders For what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world Until I seen yours And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever So don't ever you fret Know that you covered Not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a partake Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you Fully loaded, prepare you For all of the above that I'm never letting get near you But still in all, give you every advantage I found Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown And since the baton was passed, hopping down Cause feeling's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all My message to any dad, man, first off, know that yeah, it, it is a hard job But it's the greatest job in the world I wouldn't trade it for anything I wouldn't change anything about it Everything you're doing from here on out If it didn't have purpose before, now it has purpose. It's the most important thing you'll ever do. Just be a dad.